Welcome to this podcast episode. My name is Tim Chain. I am a VP Fertilizers at Argus Media. And today we're going to be looking at the sulfur market. And to join us to discuss what's happening there, we have Nina joining us, who is uh, Head of Sulfur and Sulfuric Acid Research. She's part of our consulting team, and she's responsible for our forecasts and forward-looking research um, in these markets. She spends her time thinking about what's going to affect future prices uh, for sulfur and sulfuric acid. Given that lots, lots of different things are going on in the sulfur market, we thought now would be an opportune moment to discuss how these different developments are affecting sulfur prices and uh, where we think things could be going in the future. So welcome, Mina. It's good to have you on this podcast today. And I guess let's start with prices because lots has been going on on sulfur prices. I just, just looking at prices, we've seen most sulfur references more than double in the last 12 months. Um, so lots changing uh, some rapid upward prices. Uh, recently. So tell us what's been driving this. What are the key factors that have been uh, pushing the price for sulfur up so quickly? That's a great uh, place to start, Tim. Absolutely. It's been a combination of factors, really, um, partly starting with COVID-19 related disruption to the oil markets and obviously has had a knock on effect to the sulfur supply side of things. And that's really reduced liquidity significantly. At the same time, in Q4 as well, we have seasonal tightness out of Russia. And that um, happens over the winter months uh, where we see the closure of the uh, river system there. Alongside that, there's been healthy demand um, as well as a rundown of Chinese port inventories. So all of these factors combined kind of led to the first inklings of a price run up back in the fourth quarter. And now here we are at the end of January and still there's no sign of a price ceiling being reached. So it sounds like we've got supply restrictions, supply factors combining together with demand factors and uh, all happening at the same time. Do you think we, we're going to see a continued rally in prices uh, or do you think we've reached the top? Any idea of how far this, this current development could continue? There does seem to be room for further increases in the first quarter of 2021. I think that's given the sort of very tight supply balance that we're seeing still. Their expectations are that we we'll, may well see a downward correction from the second quarter of the year. And um, that would be, again, partly seasonal factors influencing um, the price outlook. So the river system in Russia would reopen. We've also got the upcoming Chinese Lunar New Year in, in mid-February, and that may help stall the current price run that we're seeing. But certainly for the very short term, um, there is uh, no ceiling in sight at least uh, for now. I, I would say for the remainder of the year, perhaps the second half of the year, the outlook is for slightly softer prices, also from the downstream processed phosphate sector as well. And that, I think, provides some direction for the short term view for sulfur also. But of course, COVID-19 is still that wild card factor for the market overall. Um, there's obviously some positive signs that we're starting to see in the macroeconomic picture, on the back of the vaccine rollouts in some regions, but there still appears to be pretty long way to go with numerous lockdowns set in place and that those limits to travel and so on. Mm, that's a great point. Of course, the COVID pandemic and its impacts have had all kinds of implications for all commodities. But can you talk through the implications, particularly for, for sulfur supply? Because you, what you're saying there is it certainly has uh, reduced supply. But what are the mechanisms 
that's, that's made that happen. What, what particular things have happened uh, which have resulted in sulfur supply being affected by COVID-19? Well, there's been a significant impact, firstly, with the demand shock to the oil market last year that we saw. And that's been where we've seen those losses in the market. So, for instance, when we look somewhere like the US, which is a heavy um, oil based sulfur recovery market, we saw refinery run rates dropping um, in our latest quarterly self analytics we're estimating 2020 losses at about 600,000 tons of sulfur uh, just from the oil sector in the US you know and when we look at other markets western europe is another good example where we've seen um, the refining sector margins struggling as well and leading to lower run rates and tightening supply and availability oh, that's fascinating so lower refinery output means less Byproduct sulfur, of course. I guess that's a completely unexpected development. So, have, have you seen supply having suppliers having to fill in some gaps, buyers having to scramble to find uh, the, the sulfur they need in the situation, as it caused some um, disconnects uh, in terms of getting sulfur to the right places in time? Yes, absolutely. So, I think that's really where we've seen this um, price run up during this period of low liquidity and we've seen in places like China now as well where there's been a few months of liquidating stocks at the major ports those sorts of trends that we're seeing in the market as a result of this situation absolutely great uh, I guess also linked to supply would be other supply developments and connected to the to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic can you tell us uh, are you expecting other supply changes in the next year new sources of supply or changes to supply sources that will have an impact on on the supply demand balance? Yes. So despite that COVID-19 related disruption that we've been talking about in the energy markets, we are actually still seeing growth on the capacity additions in the very short term. Um, For 2021, we're currently forecasting an increase of just over 3 million tonnes of new capacity versus last year. And that's really primarily been driven by the Middle East region. So countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Kuwait. Um, Even last year, we saw um, a new gas facility starting up in Saudi Arabia. And at capacity, that one will be ramping up to over a million tonnes a year of of sulphur. Elsewhere, it will be good to note uh, Northeast Asia um, because we've got additional capacity coming online in China. Um, But I would say that certainly... There have been delays as well as a result of COVID-19. So even with um, the the new capacity that we're seeing, there are some projects. uh, The Barzan project, for instance, in Qatar is a good example here with commissioning being pushed into 2021 currently. I got it. Okay, so it sounds like growing supply is expected to influence the market, but particularly in the Middle East. uh, It sounds like that's where we need to keep a close eye on supply in the medium term. Do you think that producers in the Middle East will start using long-term sulfur storage as an alternative to to supplying the markets uh, as a way of controlling supply and balancing the markets? That's a, an actually really interesting question because when you look back historically, the producers' main marketing strategy for the Middle East region at least is to pretty much export production with minimal stocking overall, um, perhaps only building stocks during periods of technical issues or any problems at the ports, for example. And going forward, we would expect that trend to continue. And some of the analysis we've been doing in the analytics is to look at a sulfur cost curve to try to address this question of uh, which, if any, producers 
would be looking to potentially stock sulfur in long term storage during periods of low pricing, perhaps. And um, the cost curve is based around freight and logistics costs, obviously, because sulfur is a byproduct. And that exercise has really shown the vast difference in cost between most most Middle East producers in terms of getting product to port um, ready for export versus some of the other regional counterparts. So in places like Western Canada or Central Asia, Turkmenistan. Ah, I see. So Middle Eastern producers can get product to port more cost effectively, which means the barrier to, to exporting is lower, presumably. But if they did start storing sulfur in a long term way, that would be a major structural change to the market. Certainly, as you said, something we haven't seen. It does sound like you think that's unlikely, though. Did I interpret you correctly? Exactly. Yes, we would expect that to be a highly unlikely scenario. And it would really be the other producers perhaps with much higher costs um, in terms of logistics that would go down that route. So I think Turkmenistan is a good example here where uh, the logistics can be prohibitive in terms of the the cost side of things and getting product out for export. Um, And those would be the types of producers that would um, look at those long term storage options, perhaps if we reach uh, periods of lower pricing. Makes sense. Thanks. Uh, just to, uh, turning to the Northwest European markets, um, of course, the Northwest European market is different in the sense that it's a molten market, not a not solid, not a solid sulfur market. What sort of trends do you see uh, in Northwest Europe uh, as compared to the rest of the world? That's right. Yes. So the Northwest European sulfur market, we tend to see a premium to pricing in the region, and that's because of the molten nature of sulfur, and it's a bit of more of a closed market. Uh, what some of the trends that have led to this has been that structural decline that we've been seeing in gas based production, particularly in Germany, as well as the tightening across the refining sector in recent years. And that's been something we've been seeing over the past decade, really. Um, the COVID-19 oil demand collapse, I think, has highlighted some of the issues that the Northwest European refiners have been uh, facing. And we have seen increasing tightness in some countries And in the last couple of years, there are two projects that have emerged to address this market balance issue. And those are remelter projects. And so this will be interesting to see how these progress. And both the projects are based in Germany. And that's where we see the the gas based supply depleting in the medium term that will be dropping down to pretty much zero. And so the two remelters would potentially one or both of them look to import solid sulfur for remelt to supply molten to those buyers that require it. I guess that would mean that the premium would remain because there'd be some costs required to remelt that imported solid sulfur. Yes, exactly. That's the thinking that with the cost of remelt from the one or two projects there, we would expect the premium on Northwest European prices to remain in the, in the long term outlook. Turning across uh, from supply to the demand side, we've seen disruption in fertilizer markets from COVID-19, of course, through the course of last year and into this year. But I've, I've noticed in phosphates, of course, that the processed phosphate prices have been also increasing. Can you comment on the impacts of developments in the phosphate sector through the pandemic and how that's affected sulfur demand? Yeah, so it's been quite an interesting few months um, in the downstream processed phosphates market because at the very start of the pandemic in early in 2020, 
we did see the disruption with lockdowns leading to uh, a reduction at that time in phosphoric acid production in places like India. And obviously that had a knock on impact on uh, sulfur demand in, in that region. But then pretty quickly after that, we did see a lot of government support for the agricultural sector, which then supported um, continued operations and restart of some of the operations in the phosphoric acid side of things. And actually, when we look at the year overall, our estimates show that demand for sulfur in the phosphoric acid sector actually grew marginally last year. And I think really this was supported by Moroccan uptick in production of phosphoric acid, really. Uh, overall, when we look at the whole demand picture, fertilisers and, and all other end uses, we did see a decline at the moment. Our estimate is about 800,000 ton, tonnes of demand losses versus the 2019 level. But this was not uniform across all regions. So I've mentioned Morocco, of course, so Africa saw growth. So did Latin America and also Southeast Asia whereas we saw uh, Northeast Asia and North America seeing uh, a reduction in, in demand. That's interesting to know. Would that mean that the tightness and the uh, rising prices in processed phosphates uh, will continue to support sulfur prices in the next few months, do you think? Absolutely, yes. So there's a strong correlation between the downstream phosphates market prices and sulfur. And um, when we look globally, we estimate over 90% of seaborne sulfur trade is for phosphate producers. So you can see there's a strong link with trade and pricing the phosphates market sector overall. Um, so certainly the tightness that we're seeing in, in the, the downstream phosphate market would support sulfur in that very short term, at least. What about the non-fertilizer markets that consume sulfur? How are they developing and how is that affecting overall sulfur demand volumes? So outside of fertilisers, the metals and industrial sectors are really key for the sulphur market outlook. Um, we've spent quite a lot of time assessing the nickel market recently. Um, in our latest analytics, we delved into some of the new projects that are emerging in this sector, some which are firm and some speculative. But um, this, these are really concentrated in Indonesia for the new firm emerging projects and also in Australia. For Indonesia, that's quite key to note, I think, particularly because of the import requirement that would be there from the sulfur side, because we would expect to see sulfur burners being installed alongside these new leaching projects. Obviously, it's sulfuric acid, which is required at the project level, but at the mine level, but um, um, majority of nickel projects that we tend to see uh, install sulfur burners as well. There's been obviously disruption with COVID-19 to the nickel markets. So one of the major projects in Madagascar is currently on care and maintenance and has been for, for some time now, but we're expecting to see that restarting this quarter. And the demand side for nickel growth, it's partly attributed to the electric vehicle market. And that's obviously being a significant growth area in light of environmental policies and so on. Lots of consuming segments to keep track of when you're looking at sulfur. It's really interesting to see the diverse ways that sulfur is used. I'd like to turn to look at a particular country. Of course, you can't talk about sulfur for too long without discussing China and what's happening there. And we saw Chinese sulfur imports plummet in 2020. 
Also, I've seen that the Chinese sulfur stocks were much lower by the end of the year than they were at the beginning of the year. So what is your view of how this is going to develop during 2021? We do expect to see this trend continuing, actually, in the very short term. Um, and we are not forecasting any recovery in, in Chinese imports. And in fact, we're actually looking at China potentially losing its leading importer ranking in that medium term forecast as well. So this trend is set to continue. What is behind the, the drop in stocks in China? Is that something structural or is it just a cyclical issue? With the tighter availability in the market, as well as the prices, we've seen a move to liquidate stocks from traders. So not necessarily structural. I mean, over the years, we've seen historical fluctuations in Chinese port stock levels. And it's not unusual to see this type of drawdown that we're currently seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I guess when prices are up, it's a good time to be selling sulfur inventories. So that that makes great sense. Finally, I'd like to ask you about sulfur trade. How do you see sulfur trade evolving during the, the outlook period in the medium term? How are these supply and demand factors going to impact trade? Great question. Yes. So ultimately, obviously, any changes in supply and demand will influence the trade flows that we're seeing in sulfur. So China, we've mentioned for the last year with the plummeting volumes, we actually saw a drop of three million tons, which is really interesting. And I think going forward, that trend is expected to continue, as I've mentioned. So one of the things that uh, is driving that is the rise in Chinese domestic production of sulfur. So we're expecting to see that uh, almost a 40 percent increase on current levels of sulfur production in China by 2025. So that will continue to sort of dampen the view for Chinese imports. Elsewhere, Africa is a region with strong potential for significant changes. So we mentioned Morocco earlier, and I think in particular in the forward view, it's the ramp up of uh, increased process phosphates production capacity. And obviously in the absence of any domestic sulfur output, then we'll see increased imports there. Uh, On the export side, I would say the story is really around the Middle East region uh, with growing capacity on the gas side in particular and some new oil projects due to come online. We'll be expecting this production to be for the global export market. Other projects that we're keeping an eye on are in Western Canada with several new forming projects emerging and that would potentially mean an increased trade out of sulfur out of um, Alberta as well. Well there's lots to keep an eye on there and we look forward to hearing from you again. Nina, thanks for your time today. It's been very interesting to discuss how things are developing in the sulfur market. And if you're listening to this podcast and would like to delve into more detail, uh, if you're a subscriber, then please log into Argus Direct and uh, download two different reports, which I think will be interesting. The one is our latest quarterly sulfur analytics report, which was published in December. So a few weeks ago, it's available covering development in the sulfur market. And then we've also just published our annual long-term sulfur outlook report, which is part of the same sulfur analytics service. That's also available in August Direct. And that's a longer longer report looking in more detail at how things are going to develop further out uh, on sulfur demand, sulfur supply, trade and prices. If you aren't a sulfur analytics subscriber, please have a look at argusmedia.com where you can find more information about our sulfur services, including sulfur analytics, which is published by our team in the consulting group and certainly contains Mina's expertise in terms of how these developments will affect future prices.
Thanks for your time today. And we hope you join us for the next self uh, podcast.